This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The COVID-19 pandemic dramatically altered the ways both employees and employers are considering benefits. There are calls for increased flexibility, family-friendly policies, and additional health and wellness options. The pandemic also affected many Americans' concerns and plans for retirement. Tim Allen, the CEO of Care.com, Joanne Jenkins, the CEO of AARP, and Nina McQueen, a global talent leader at LinkedIn, join Washington Post Live to discuss how businesses in different sectors and companies of different sizes are approaching this new landscape that impacts employees' personal finances. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist here at The Post. Thanks for joining us today for our two-part series looking at how the pandemic has impacted personal finance. To help us make sense of this all and how it impacted retirement planning, I am delighted to welcome my first guest, Joanne Jenkins, CEO of AARP. And I just love this woman. Joanne, welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here with you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. So let's just jump right in, Joanne, if that's okay. So, you know, I was looking at all the numbers and one account showed that about 1.7 million seniors ended up unemployed because of the pandemic. How is the future of retirement changed because of the pandemic? And if it's changed, how so? Well, so as you said, COVID-19 has, uh dramatically affected all of us uh, in this country, but more so for those uh, older Americans here, uh, not only in terms of deaths uh, as a result of uh, contracting the COVID disease, but also affecting their financial and retirement planning. Uh, So many of our members uh, really saw loss of employment. And we know that if in fact you're 65 and older and lost your employment, uh, that you are more likely to be unemployed for six months or longer and uh, take more than three times longer than others to get re-employed or underemployed if in fact they do enter the workforce. It it also, we saw uh, many people have to dip into their savings. And so that really has affected not only their immediate financial security, but certainly their long-term financial security and how well they can plan for how long they're gonna live into the future. And so it, it really brought to the forefront how fragile our, our financial security, social security system is in terms of meeting the needs, not only of this generation, but of our generations to come. So we know that it pushed a lot of seniors to retire early. Why do you think that happened? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, we certainly saw you know, roughly 25% of people who were saying they were thinking about retiring, deciding to retire earlier. We know that for wealthier, wealthier uh, people that it was a much easier task to make that decision because they wanted to retire. But for many people who perhaps lost their job and was unable to find a, a, another job, they had to retire earlier, um, you know, based on the fact they couldn't find work in this new employment, a new economy. And so that certainly affects their long-term financial stability. Uh, they're paying less into the social security system. They're probably less into their personal retirement or their 401k or their, you know, uh, IRAs, uh, IRAs that they've had at uh, work. 
And so it really not only affects the immediacy of what's going on in this crisis that we're in now and have been in for the last couple of years, but it has a dramatic impact uh, on the amount of money that people are going to have as they continue to live longer, uh, uh, having less money than they had planned to have uh, pre-pandemic. So do you think any of this can be attributed to age discrimination, this, the long-term employment issue, more seniors leaving the workplace? Was it voluntary or were the signs on the table that they were going to be pushed out? Well, I'd like to say no, but I, you know, I, I, I can't say that. I think that many of our, our members are uh, telling us that they've have been affected by age discrimination as people come back into the workplace uh, or you know, unable to get reemployed uh, because of their age. And so <clears throat> we have certainly seen an uptick in the amount of age discrimination that's occurring in the workplace. You know from the work that we've done in the past that uh, we think that we should all be able to work for as long as we want to. The fact that people are living longer, healthier than ever before, uh, and the fact that we know that people who are engaged in work, whether in paid work or volunteer work, live some seven to eight years longer than those who don't. And so it's so important uh, for employers to look at this new workforce uh, with the idea of having four to five generations in the workplace at one time. And we saw the tremendous strength and wisdom that older workers brought to the workplace when we were in this midst of crisis. Uh, and, and that's important for us to have multiple generations in the workplace at one time. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, do you think that if they've been unemployed for a very long time, that they'll be able to rejoin the workforce? What are the obstacles for those seniors who, who end up being long-term and unemployed? Well, as I said earlier, um, older workers take some six plus months longer to find re-employment uh, once they leave the workforce. And so one of the things we've tried to stress to uh, uh, those who are 50 and older is to be prepared. Make sure you're upskilling uh, yourself. Make sure you know how to use technology. You know, so many of us have adjusted to this virtual work environment, virtual meeting environment. And so it's important that we take some personal responsibility in making sure that we are employable so that that issue of use of technology or ability to come to and from work is not uh, something that's keeping us from being re-employed. And so we at AERP have really stepped up our game in trying to make sure that we're rolling out training programs as it relates to technology and, and how people are communicating and, de and delivering their work in different and unique ways. And I know for us here at AARP, we certainly had to adapt the way we service our communities all across this country and how we deliver that what we would normally do in terms of traditional face-to-face -face communications in communities all across this country to make sure that our members and those people who are older in this country understand the requirements of the new work. Yeah. Do uh, you mind if I switch gears a little bit and talk about sure. um, a stat from the Federal Reserve that showed that about 56% of Black families and 44% of Hispanic families have access to employer-sponsored retirement plans. That's compared to about 68% of white families. So how else did retirement wealth inequality become more pronounced during the pandemic? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we know that people who have access to some type of savings plan, automatic savings plan at work, 
are 15 more times, 15 times more likely to save. And that is so key. And so, you know, a lot of our advocacy work over the years, and particularly in these last couple years, has been around getting states uh, to make sure that uh, places of employment are offering uh, savings vehicles to make it easier for their employees to save, whether that be a personal savings account. I know here at AERP, we started offering an emergency savings plan for our employees, uh, but also with uh, IRAs and with 401ks, whether they're matching or not. The idea that, oh, it's going to be automatic and I don't have to think about it, uh, that that really, we, we see an enormous boost in the number of people savings. And as you said, uh, Black and Latinos really fall far behind uh, in the amount of money uh, that they are saving and the rate of uh, times that they actually sign up to be involved in a savings plan at work. I know that from uh, our advocacy folks uh, here, we have over 30 states who are in the process of enacting legislation at the state level that really would require or at least offer the opportunity for uh, um, um, companies at the state level to offer savings programs uh, at the place of employment. You know, that's really interesting because you can save outside of a retirement a retirement plan, right? I mean, there's IRAs, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs that you can do on your own. But as you say, the, the key is that the studies show that people will save more and save, you know, at all if they have an employer plan. Why, why do you think that is? You can save outside. So, again, why you, is the employment plan so important? I think it's I think it makes it easier that, you know, if you don't see that money in your paycheck, uh, your net paycheck coming home, it's a lot easier not to be able to, to have that uh, willingness to sort of jump into that. And so it's so important that uh, we make it as simple as, as possible. You know, as well as I, that Social Security is not going to be enough for people to live adequately in their older age. And yet 50% of people over 65, Social Security is at least half their income. And for 10% of the uh, people over the age of 65, it is their sole source of income and retirement. And so as we continue to live longer, the, we're going to need more and more money so that we don't outlive uh, our financial means. And so having as many vehicles uh, uh, in place for retirement, whether it's Social Security or 401ks or personal savings is important. I always like to call it our three-legged stool that we have to make sure that we are planning financially to live a, a happier and healthier life in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's like, if we can switch again to um, millennials and saving young adults. Um, so nearly a quarter of working Americans had to dip into their retirement accounts to make and meet during the pandemic. So what are the concerns for younger workers who had to use their retirement funds to make, you know, to pay their bills? Well, I think that is so key because it's not just older workers. As you said, it's millennials, it's Gen Xers. Everyone is feeling the effect of this pandemic. Uh, and we know as we uh, talk to millennials and younger generations, uh, you know, they're that thinking Social Security is going to be there for them. And so that's why it's so important for us to not just plan for the current generation, but to make sure that these social safety nets, what I call earned benefits like Social Security and Medicare, is there not just for this generation, but in the future. And we have to really continue to educate about the possibility of longevity. 
uh, and the fact that people are, uh, you know, assuming good health and access to good health care, that people will live some 10, 20 years longer than they, uh, their parents or their grandparents lived, and that they have to be able to save over the course of the lifetime. And I often say, not necessarily talk about savings for retirement, but saving, savings for living, for living to be able to do planning and savings to be able to do all of the things that you've always wanted to do over the course of your lifetime. And I think that uh, that way of having a conversation makes it a lot easier to plan for that trip in the future or that retirement home or that vacation home or whatever it is, uh, you know, you choose to do in your future that, you know, you have to start thinking about those things at, at a much younger age and not just wait until you turn 65 before you think about whether or not you have enough money to live another 20 or 30 years. Yeah, you know, that's a great way to segue to an audience question. Uh, we have a question from Raphael from Massachusetts who says, who asked, what piece of financial advice would you give to a recent high school graduate or a recent college graduate? Well, uh, I, I will say since I have a daughter who's a recent college graduate, and I really try to uh, continue to educate my own children and, and other uh, younger people about how important it is to save, regardless of how small it is, uh, to think about that and prepare for your future at a much earlier age. It'll be so much easier than if you wait until you're in your 50s and 60s to start thinking about planning. And the idea that, you know, when, when I grew up, you know, most people went to work at one uh, company and stayed there for 20 or 30 years. These new generations that are coming up are not only going to have two or three different jobs, they're going to have two or three totally different careers. And you have to be able to plan financially across multiple career types and multiple places of work. Uh, and so this idea that I know you've talked about previously in some of your uh, columns, Michelle, of you know, how do we think about uh, a retirement future that makes it easier for the individual to take their retirement uh, savings from one place to another place? And whether that's a 401k or IRA or, or just a simple savings account, how do we make it as easy as possible for people to continue to save over the course of a lifetime to be able to do that? And I think that's going to be really key to how we talk about uh, savings for our future. Uh, which may or may not include retirement. Yeah, that's a great thing. You say you had a daughter. I, my uh, my husband and I have a 26-year-old who's actually living with us. Um, and we asked her to do that. And we were sitting down with her to work out her retirement. And she was sort of like, I don't know. I got all these other priorities. It's like, <laughs> no, save retirement, save retirement. And she's actually saving 10%. So, yes. um, but that actually brings me to a quick question. So when, when it comes to young adults who've just graduated, may have graduated with some student loan debt, what should they prioritize? Retirement savings or just uh, paying off that debt? Well, so I would just offer my own personal uh, advice on that. I think you're really looking at the cost of carrying that, that debt and the interest rates to be able to think about, you know, how much is that student loan debt versus long-term planning? Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to do both at the same time. But you know, so many of sure. uh, so many of young people have that educational uh, debt that they're carrying with them. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think that you should concentrate on paying off that debt. Um, and I know that's contrary to what a lot of people say, because the earlier you save for retirement, the better. But however, get that off your plate so that later you can focus on putting more money into retirement when you're making more money. So real quickly, and then I'm going to go to one more um, audience question. So lots of young adults, uh, when I'm talking to them, they'll go, oh, well, you know what? Social Security is not going to be there when I when it's time for me to retire. Um, do you think that the pandemic impacted the future of Social Security? So I think that, you know, we are trying every day in all of our advocacy works to make sure that Congress and the White House, uh, all of them understand how important Social Security is to our future uh, security. Uh, and so while the, the latest uh, trust fund numbers indicate that there is a solvency, uh, you know, for a couple more years beyond what we had originally thought, I think the last numbers were around 2033 uh, at 100%, we should, all, we should all be focused on how we make sure that Social Security is that there for the next 50 or 60 years. And there are some things that we could be doing now to make sure that happens. And I constantly remind uh, members of Congress, that this is an earned benefit. This is something that people have paid into over 40 quarters during the course of their life work. And that it's, it's not an entitlement, it's an entitled to because they've been paying into the system. And that we need to make sure that Social Security and Medicare is there. And how, you know, that couldn't have come more to the forefront than this uh, COVID-19 pandemic has put us in of how important it is to have that financial and that health safety net for the future. Absolutely. So we have one more uh, audience question. Um, this is from Alva uh, from California. She asks, I would really like to continue working at the, my job uh, part-time rather than retire. Yet this seems to be an option little considered. What could be done to facilitate using the skills of older workers as a reduced intensity? Well, I would say first that it is becoming more and more likely. I know even here at AARP, so many of our employees uh, really just need a break and then they want to come back after they take a year off or, and sort of come back. Or we offer phased retirement and, and we're beginning to see, particularly with the shortage in of workers in the country, that a lot of companies are considering uh, phased retirement uh, as a possibility. And I think we just need to continue to educate employers that this is a very viable option and the value that older workers bring into the work. Yeah. So my last question, because I hate to see you go, but let me just ask you, what do we have to look forward to? Are you encouraged? I mean, there's so much bad news. Older workers out of work and having trouble. Um, young adults pulling money out of their accounts. People worried about social security. But, you know, what what do you see? What's the upside, the bright side of retirement planning for you? Well, I think that people are, you know, I think one of the things that I'm excited about is that particularly with older uh, people, that one thing the pandemic really did help is on the use of technology and how important it is for all of us to keep our technology skills up to market uh, to be able to not only uh, be prepared for the workplace, but also be prepared to communicate with our families and friends and communities all across this country. And I think that the more and more we continue to educate people about the value of older workers and how important 
uh, it is to have them in the generations of people who serve their workplace. Uh, and the idea that uh, areas where we're going to be uh, see uh, staffing shortages, like in healthcare and education, that these are terrific second careers for older workers to be considered to be able to do. And so I'm excited about that. Of course, like I said, Social Security and Medicare are, are at the forefront of making sure that that security is there. But I think the idea that people want, you know, our own members tell us they want to continue working past traditional retirement age of 65 and well into their 70s. And so I think you're going to see people uh, have a 40, 50 year work career uh, and it's going to become the norm versus uh, the unusual 50 year anniversary. Yeah, that's true. Well, oh my gosh, that is all the time we have today. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation with you, Joanne. Uh, thank you for joining us, for helping us understand how uh, financial uh, retirement planning was impacted by the pandemic. Um, just, just love having this conversation with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for everything you do to inform so many of us about how important it is to plan financially. Oh, wonderful. So we'll be right back in a moment with our next guest, Nina McQueen from LinkedIn and Tim Allen from care.com. Why don't you please stay with us for the next part of this discussion? The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. The pandemic has exposed and sometimes worsened the financial precarity of many Americans. Here to discuss this more at length is Jennifer Halloran, Head of Marketing and Brand at MassMutual. Welcome. Thank you. Jennifer, let's first delve into this conversation about workplace benefits, which have really evolved over the last 15 years or so. Many employers now offer resources to support their workers' mental health and well-being, which of course is a positive trend. But increasingly, employers are also rolling out benefits to help their staff attain financial wellness. What trends are you seeing on that front? Yeah, the landscape of workplace benefits has definitely changed. Uh, one of the trends that we've seen is many human resource departments are taking an active part in educating their workers on the fundamentals of financial wellness so they can understand not only the details of their benefits, but how these benefits can be used for many of their financial needs. Increased innovation in technology and training has also created an arsenal of online resources in this area. In some cases, we've seen companies build personalized financial coaching to teach their employees the basics, like how to budget, the importance of saving for retirement, the principles of compounded growth, and even how to choose an investment portfolio that aligns with their time horizon, financial goals, and tolerance for risk. Another trend we're also seeing is that many companies are automatically enrolling all new employees in their 401k plan with a minimum monthly contribution. This way, they collect the employer match so they're not leaving free money on the table. Interesting. Well, a large share of Americans are experiencing a major financial setback due to COVID-19 and partly because they did not have enough personal savings to weather a prolonged period of unemployment. With that in mind, one would assume that these are the kinds of benefits that are even more important in the post-pandemic era. Is that assumption a correct one? Absolutely. COVID-19 really exposed our collective financial vulnerability because so many Americans were already living paycheck to paycheck. 
And it has certainly reminded us all about the importance of having an emergency fund with at least three to six months worth of living expenses set aside. And these extra savings set aside should be even more for those who are self-employed, dependent on a single income, or in any position with any form of job insecurity. But putting these funds aside takes a lot of discipline. So many employers are also stepping up to help. According to the National Association of Plan Advisors, some companies are looking to add a payroll deduction option that would allow their employees to contribute to an emergency fund directly through their monthly automated deposits from their paycheck. The idea here is to make sure you're paying yourself first, and we expect to see more of these kinds of financial planning benefits certainly accelerate in the wake of the pandemic. That makes a lot of sense. The pandemic and even the Great Recession prior significantly affected retirement readiness, particularly for the most financially vulnerable. Talk to us about some of that impact. Yeah, it did. Many Americans are not well positioned for retirement. In fact, a 2019 Federal Reserve survey found that the average retirement account balance for American households was just $65,000. And we know that some of those who lost their jobs during the pandemic were forced to take an early withdrawal from their retirement account to be able to cover basic living expenses. We also saw many put a temporary hold on new contributions to their 401k plans, which translates into a big opportunity cost in terms of lost potential earnings. And some pre-retirees delayed their retirement altogether or had to reimagine their retirement to include part-time work. And from a demographic perspective, we also saw the pandemic really widen the retirement security gap for women and communities of color, groups that are already struggled with lower incomes, less job security, and fewer savings. Absolutely. Well, the national retirement savings shortfall is certainly a serious pain point for our country, but there has actually been recent legislation aimed at supporting American workers on the road to retirement security. What can you tell us about some of these bills? In late 2019, Congress actually passed the SECURE Act which stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement. This included a number of provisions, one of the strongest which to provide a tax break to encourage small employers to begin offering their employees a 401k retirement savings plan. And this is great news for the 60 million plus American workers who are employed by small businesses. The SECURE Act also pushed the age at which you can begin to take minimum distributions from your IRA or your 401k from age 70 and a half to now age 72, giving more time for accumulation and the benefits of that compounded growth. And it eliminated the age limit for contributing to a traditional IRA, which had kept older workers from being able to add to their retirement savings. And there's already a proposed update to the SECURE Act, which if passed would automatically enroll employees in their workplace 401ks. A lot of opportunity for what has been put in place and what could still come for so many Americans planning for a secure retirement. Absolutely. Well, it's great to see that this issue is being tackled by both the public and the private sectors, and hopefully it is one that will gain continued momentum. Thank you for your deep insight, Jennifer. And now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And for those of you who are just joining us, I'm Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist here at the Washington Post. We are talking today about how the pandemic has impacted personal finance. And so this part of the conversation, we're going to be talking about the benefits landscape. And I'm happy to have two guests joining me today, Tim Allen, CEO of Care.com. 
and Nina McQueen, who is Vice President of Global Talent and Benefits and Employee Experience at LinkedIn. Um, Tim and Nina, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Michelle, uh, great you. to see you. Great. Um, so it's going to be a great conversation. I love benefits. So Nina, let's start with you talking about workplace benefits. So um, what this obviously there have been a lot of concern about COVID and now we have the, the uh, uh, Delta variant. How has that impacted healthcare choices or options for employees? And you know, what is, are there anything new that people should know about as a result of COVID? Well, so when we think about the pandemic, we know that this put this huge strain on the way we work and lives, live. So at LinkedIn, very early on, we wanted to understand how employees were feeling. So we sent out a poll survey and simply asked the question, how are you? And employees came back to us with thousands of comments expressing feelings of burnout, anxiety, struggles with family responsibilities, and desperately missing social interactions with their coworkers and friends. So knowing our employees were struggling, we wanted to help balance that out by providing some self-care, some space to breathe, and then maybe add in a little sprinkle of fun. So we created what we call Lift Up. Lift Up's a series of initiatives that we have rolled out throughout the year designed to support employees during this extended work from home period. And then we added in some surprise and delight moments along the way to create buzz and, and anticipation. So to give some examples, to address burnout, we implemented a no meeting day once a month. So employees can take that break away from the video, gives them time to catch up on email, to, to think big and to, to simply catch their breath. And then we also gave employees a paid week off in April. We knew there was something special when the whole company took a break at the same time. It allowed our employees to disconnect from work, to um, not have to return to an avalanche of emails. And they really did appreciate that we gave them what they truly valued and came back refreshed, engaged, and they felt seen and heard. And then we supported a few other things. So for mental health, we increased our EAP to 25 visits. And we partnered with our vendor to create mental health workshops like the most recent one we had, which is how to cope with re-entry anxiety. And then to foster those social connections people were missing, we traded out holiday parties and lunches and instead hosted what we called a silver linings event. It was a show that shined the light on the best parts of 2020 as told by our employees in videos they submitted. So, Stories about new babies and puppies and engagements and overcoming illness or learning new skills like sourdough bread. And then as oh, Tim knows, as Tim knows, family responsibilities uh, was really difficult. So for those with children at home or caring for elderly parents, we provided an emergency accommodation that's paid time off uh, that people can take in increments of days, hours or weeks, subsidizing virtual tutoring, virtual childcare, and then we have some surprise and delights that I can talk about a little bit later. Oh, that's great. Wow. Uh, that's quite a lot. And, you know, I love the way you frame that because we think of traditional healthcare as just 
benefits to go to the doctors, but it has, it, it's more than that. It's like, you know, mental health days, basically. We used to sort of sneak and take those mental health days, and now you've incorporated and more companies are uh, uh, doing that. So I want to go to an audience question and both um, ask both you, Nina, and Tim to answer it. So this question um, comes uh, from Lorraine. Um, and she says, how are employers and insurance companies assisting the long haulers? Are long-term disability claims being approved or denied due to, and in many cases, in, in inclusive test results? So, you know, those people who've had it and now have some issues. Um, Tim, can you answer that first? And then Nina, um, maybe follow up. Yeah, sure. What we're seeing with employers and, and what I love about what I'm going to tap on what Nina said for just a second, which is you have forward thinking of employers who have really recognized that they're shattering the glass between what used to be work slash life, and now it's just life. You basically have a work environment that exists inside of your home, and you have to accommodate for all of the spectrums of what occurs inside of that environment. And a lot of forward thinking employers such as LinkedIn, you've got Disney, you've got Starbucks, are out there saying and asking the right questions going, how can we support our employees to have this holistic full life? Specifically in the question on long haulers, I think there's a lot to be determined, to be completely frank. Um, I see a lot of forward thinking companies, a lot of forward leading companies such as ourselves that are of course making accommodations to ensure that the employee who is individually affected by either a long haul case or the COVID-19 uh, COVID uh, uh, pandemic, are getting the time that they need. Now, it may either be for themselves in terms of the healthcare they need, the insurance coverage that they need, uh, in terms of having the, the support mechanisms in place to ensure that, as you mentioned, Michelle, health is checked off from an insurance and benefits perspective, but also I'm seeing a lot of companies lean into the support structures of that as well. Compassion care, making sure that you can take time off to take care of your loved ones. I have a lot of parents who are, are sitting there going, what do I do if my child catches COVID because I don't have a policy at work on for taking care of paid family leave for those that are not directly employed by the organization. A lot of forward thinking companies, a lot of leading organizations such as the ones that we have that we work with at care.com are thinking outside the box and saying, how do we create and envelop a care, a care spectrum and a package of benefits that actually uh, handles everything instead of just this one piece of the benefit puzzle? Yeah, yeah. So Nina, the same question to you about long haulers. And can I just sort of add that we're all in the middle of it now. Everybody is very sympathetic and empathetic. But you know there's going to be that moment when we get past that, that people are still going to be having repercussions and, and the rest of everyone else is sort of normalized. Mm -hmm. So what happens to those folks? I mean, do you think companies will continue to put in place all the things that you guys have talked about at your own companies for, for the time where it's not front and center? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was, and to add on to something that Tim said, which is uh, something we have in place, which is also the care for their family. So we have a family care leave, six weeks of paid time off to care for family members who are ill, uh, besides the benefits that they have for themselves. But I think that you're right. When the pandemic hit, we had this once in a generation opportunity to reevaluate how we offer benefits. Um, in a completely new way. Employers have ways now to focus on wellness like they never have before. And so I think there's been some learnings throughout this pandemic, things like the mental health, things like taking care of yourself, that it's going to continue to carry on. We want those things 
um, to stay. So we are going to continue things like a, a no meeting day or um, support for our families. You know, we have a lot of support. We call them family first benefits. And uh, those are definitely going to continue and continue to be uh, reiterated on because or iterated on because we're going to learn and grow as we go. We don't have all the answers. When this happened a year and a half ago, we had no idea we would still be here today. So we are learning, we're adjusting, and we're getting that feedback from our employees on what is most important to them. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, and Michelle, if I could add one thing, which is what I love about what Nita just said is it's not a normalization back to revert to what was there previous to COVID. It's a normalization to the new. And so I think a lot of organizations are going to recognize that to what Nita said, this is a reset moment. Right? They're not looking at just benefits as a check the box. We were able to ha have health insurance or an EAP program. You know, what I love about what Nina said is that they've expanded their mental health benefit. We have a lot of employers coming to us and saying, our individuals are desperate for mental health, not on the monolithic structure of mental health, where they had to go into an office and find one and test and iterate, but in a 21st century way of, can I get text mental health? Can I get video mental health now that I'm working from home with the pandemic? And now can we expand our benefits so it's utilized versus it be a, we have this available to you and it may be used or may not be used. So I do think when you ask the long hauler question, the new normal bar has been reset to where now normalization will encompass those that have had COVID or have been, are, are dealing with the long and existing structures of COVID. Yeah, in fact, you uh, care.com put out a report um, this year, uh, the future of benefits is that if yeah. I remember correctly, the title of it, and yeah. I found it fascinating, the statistics and looking at, as you call it, the new normal. And there was a quote in the report that basically said, we can't just everybody sort of rose to the occasion because of the crisis, but we can't forget the lessons from the crisis. And I actually, I'm just going to be candid with you. I'm a really, I'm a little bit worried that we will go to the old normal. I mean, you clearly yeah. care.com and LinkedIn are ahead of the game of competitors, yeah. but we know there are employers that were rushing people back, you know, and now of course people have to come back home because of um, the variant. But tell me about that report and what you found. And do you think that employers will embrace the new normal when it comes to benefits? Yeah, so we interviewed over 500 C-level, either HR or benefit advisors inside of organizations. And what we have found is over 98% of them said, this is going to be a complete restructure of what looks like the benefits, right? And you, it specifically, and interestingly enough, in childcare and senior care is where you really saw them take aim in terms of helping put support structures in to help families exist. As we all know the stats and, and to everyone in the audience who knows the stats, with over 3 million women leaving the workforce, there is another epidemic on the, uh, occurring in front of us, which is you know, just the attrition in the workforce of, of, of women in, you know, in terms of participation because of what they're drawing from family and life and home. So I think employers, and I'm seeing a lot of forward-leaning employers like you talked about, care.com, you know, LinkedIn, the ones that we've mentioned before, I think are gonna to continue to be able to be progressive and push forward because there's a couple of different issues that they're facing right now, which is how do we keep more moms into the workforce who are not having to choose between family and work? And interestingly enough, what ends up happening is there's all the silent unpaid labor hours that, that women are having to do at home, the, you know, taking care of the household, you know, they take on two thirds of those silent labor hours. 
And so really progressive organizations are saying, great, how can we actually make it an equilibrium? How can we actually set up benefits so men can actually participate in the silent labor, the silent labor work hours? And also women can continue to feel like they can participate in the workforce and have their family life and structure and not feel this abject decision that they're facing in front of them. When you look at that in the context of what's occurred inside of COVID, right? You have the COVID benefits for the entire populace of employees, and then you've got the populace in terms that really impact those that are trading from the organizations. And you look at that entire package, you start to see that, will it revert back to the mean? I don't think it's possible to. I think where we're really seeing some forward thinking in terms of, of this overall, what I call the, the, the corpus of impact from COVID-19 on the benefit structure is also happening on manufacturing lines. It's happening in warehouse working. It's happening in retail. We have all of those different industries showing up and coming to us or coming to others and starting to have that conversation of how do we help parents that are working the graveyard shift in the warehouse so they really have access to care on a perpetual basis not back to the monolithic nine to five structure of dropping your child off in a daycare center or having to figure out what to do with an aging parent of mom and dad so when you ask does it transform for life i think it's the first time the conversations really ever happened and i do think that what's going to end up happening from the groundswell of private industry and employers is there's no turning back at this point you can't revert back because of all of the different conflation issues that are occurring due to the pandemic yeah, I hope that's true. So Nina, I'm very intrigued by this week off and no meaning. <laughs> so what did you learn from that? Uh, was it you gave everyone a week off? What did you learn from that? So it was um, extraordinary. By by giving everyone globally the week off, and let's, let's be real, we have people who absolutely are critical to the business that needed to work, so we needed to make some adjustments for them. But by giving everyone that week off, you know what it's like when you even go on vacation yourself, you know, before you go out, you're working all these hours while you're gone, you might be checking your device and you might have to approve things. There's meetings happening and decisions being made that you're feeling left out of. And then you come back and you end up working so many hours to catch up by all of us being off at the same time that allowed people to truly disconnect, to get rested, to recharge. We wanted to thank them for all the hard work they've been putting in for us during this time. And when they came back, they don't come back to that avalanche of emails. It was the most talked about thing when we came back, which is uh, their email boxes weren't just completely full because a lot of it is generated internally. And so that was a huge break. So people felt heard. You know, we, I, I, I said early on, we asked the question, how are you? We have asked the question, how are you every few months? over the last year and a half. And we monitor that and see what people are saying. And so employees felt heard that they'd been working these, you know, tremendously hard. When you're working from home, you can't, you, you end up working more hours because you're not walking to a conference room, you're not commuting to work. And so they told us they were starting to feel burnt out and we wanted to address that and they felt truly heard. So it was it was a yeah. wonder, Every everyone loved it. Executive C-suite, everyone. 
Yeah, I love that. It's so interesting because I worked from home for for 20 plus years, even you know before COVID, um, and I worked so many more hours because I kind of wanted to prove that I wasn't sitting home, you know, watching you know daytime soaps. Uh, and in fact, I got my column syndicated, uh, and when the syndicate I took over for um, um, uh, Jane uh, Bryant Quinn, who's just you know phenomenal writer, and uh, I sent her, she sent an email like at, I don't know one o'clock in the morning or something like that, and I answered it. <laughs> and the cynic said, see, that's why we're going to have her replace you. But, you know, but this is a question for both you and Nina and, and, and Tim. So, and Nina, you and I have talked about this offline. She's just, I love you. So you got to tell the car story. But you put these things in place this week off and no meetings and, you know, shut down and mental health. But there is a part of us that doesn't trust the executive, the C-suite, as you call it, that, you know, you say we can take that time off. You say we can't look at our emails. But the fact of the matter is you feel like it's it's an okie doke. It's a it's a I think you call it a shadow benefit, right? That it's there, but not really. So um, then if you could tell me about that car story and why it's so important for companies to really say you can actually take your time off. And then Tim, what you learned from the report that are are people gonna be penalized for taking these yeah. new benefits and the new yeah. normal? So Nina, tell tell a car story. It's I love it. Okay, so I'll first, I'll first talk about the shadow benefits and what does C-suite really mean it. So one thing that's really important is when we put this lift up initiative in, which has been in now for over a year, it was so important to our CEO and our executives that this is that we had to focus on our employee well-being, that he wanted to keep that drumbeat going. So every two weeks at our company, All Hands, there is a segment on lift up, and that is where I'm introducing what's coming up next. They are supporting it. He, he, the CEO comes on after I speak and, and reiterates it. And so he's uh, fully behind it. So I think employees sure. truly do believe this is embraced. But my car story is that when I go back into the early days of my career and when I was learning what it was like to work in a corporate environment, I had a coworker who went on vacation and he lived in San Francisco. He didn't have a parking garage and he had a little Miata convertible and he was worried about leaving it for a week. So he parked it in the front of our building where there's a security guard and a receptionist during the day so his car would be safe. While he was on, or shortly after he came back or while he was gone, I was having a conversation with our CFO many years ago. And that CFO said, boy, you know, he worked, Chris worked so hard. He is, he is here when I get here in the morning and he is still here when I leave at night. And that, he just worked so, so hard. And you know what that told me? That told me FaceTime is everything because Chris was on vacation and he didn't know it. And now I do believe that has shifted because when we first started thinking about remote work and is that possible, I'm talking years ago, we always would come up with all these reasons or barriers of success on being remote. We had technology, but could we really do it? And I think if anything, we've learned a lot this 18 months, past 18 months that we can do it. Yeah. yeah, just real quickly, Tim, we're running out of time, but if you could in 30 seconds just respond to that whole shadow benefits and like, you no, know, we kind of No problem. I love, I love hearing you to talk about it. So what's interesting for me is two things. One is 
I totally believe there's such thing as shadow benefits sitting out there. Unlimited PTO ended up being one of those things that everyone was hyping for such a long time, especially in technology companies. And the studies show that people took less time off. So you've got to walk the walk as a senior executive team if you're going to talk the talk. And what that means is you have to interject and force people to take time off, take weeks off. I love the plan that LinkedIn's put in together saying take a collective week off because people need break or burnout occurs. I wrote an article for the, the Harvard Business Review on a reflective moment of my life where I was walking into the birth of my children on a conference call. And I said to myself, wow, what example am I setting for my senior staff that doesn't say it's okay for you to take the time off for these important milestones of your life, including the birth of your child, take your paternity, take your maternity leave. You have to set the example. You have to be the beacon that, at the top of the hill. And not just the CEOs, but everyone from the executive suite has to be the ones to go, why are you emailing me when you're on maternity and paternity leave? Come back, we'll integrate you back in. You don't have to lose your, you don't feel like you're losing your seat at the table because you're doing the thing that we are encouraging you to do. Uh, so I, that's that's my addition to that conversation, please. Oh, I, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. My daughter was in the hospital once and I was writing my column from her hospital room. And at one point I looked up and I thought, I, what am I doing? So, and I think, <laughs> You know, COVID has made us realize how important our off time is and that hopefully companies will respect that and that we believe them when they put in these benefits. Well, listen, thank you, too, for joining me. Thank you, Tim um, and Nina, for joining us. Love talking to you. Wish we had more time to talk about this benefits thing. I know everybody's concerned about that. So thank you for joining us. Thank Thanks you. so much. Good to see you guys. So I uh, thank all of you for joining. I know sitting in front of watching this without us sort of live is kind of unusual, but I'm just so glad that you joined us for this conversation. If you're joining us later and you're watching it, thank you for spending the time with us to talk about how the pandemic has impacted personal finance and retirement planning. Want again, thank Joanne Jenkins from AARP. And I hope that you watch other programs from uh, Washington Post Live. We've got some great conversations in the past and coming up. All you have to do is go to WashingtonPostLive.com and listen in. Uh, just fascinating topics. So thank you again for joining us today. And I hope that we see you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.